Written and read by Oliver Gray. Chapter 4 Ben wasn't sure he'd chosen the right career. In fact, he feared he might be going through a very premature midlife crisis. He wasn't sure whether his feelings constituted panic attacks, but he spent much of each day feeling nauseous, unable to focus and mildly dizzy. He had 28 children in his Year 4 class at St John's School, and often the responsibility felt overwhelming. The children, eight- and nine-year-olds, were permanently in motion, constantly demanding his attention. Their middle-class parents were always requiring him to detail their children's exact levels of progress and sort out their myriad relationship problems with other pupils. As an English graduate, Ben struggled to deliver a curriculum which demanded that he teach every subject, including maths and science, areas which were so alien to him that he felt barely more knowledgeable than his pupils. This meant that hours had to be spent every evening preparing lessons. On top of that, government regulations required a large amount of record-keeping, preparing pupils for their standard attainment sets. Teachers had to produce and keep evidence and copious details on the exact progress of each child. But the pressure wasn't only on him. Primary schools were judged and rated on the results of tests, and this meant considerable stress for Robert, the headmaster. If standards fell, particularly in a smart area like this, information would be published in the local press, parents would possibly choose another school, numbers would fall, and jobs could be threatened. None of this would have mattered so much were it not for the fact that, as it stood, Ben would soon be related to Robert. This personal connection made for a strange dynamic in their relationship. It was not unusual for them to be sharing dinner one night and having a tetchy formal meeting the next day. I'm sorry to have to say this, Ben, but I'm afraid you're going to have to pull yourself together. Teachers earned their money, all right. If he'd been willing to devote every waking hour to the job, Ben would probably have been able to keep up with all the form-filling and record-keeping, the playground duties and the extracurricular activities. But he didn't really like the job enough to show such dedication, and he didn't like Robert enough either. Cowed by the system, and coming from a more conservative generation, Robert was the kind of grey-suited, grey-minded, career-educationalist responsible for squeezing all the fun out of working with children. The sort of creative activities that Ben enjoyed so much, such as singing and drama, had been virtually eliminated from the school day. For Ben, it really had almost reached the stage where he was only doing the job for the paycheck. Ben's love of music, and the Americana genre in particular, was, apart from jogging, pretty much his only hobby. He loved Neil Young and Tom Waits, and tried to keep up with new artists too. He'd been to Shepherd's Bush Empire to see Laura Veers and to Queen Elizabeth Hall for Lucinda Williams. Rosie didn't share his obsession, so Ben's enjoyment was confined to his iPod and headphones, and his trips to concerts were solo activities. Rosie preferred to hang out with her friends in the property business. She liked to read Hello! magazine, and her musical interest didn't go much beyond George Michael and X Factor. Despite this, she looked forward to marrying Ben within the next year, and they had already talked about having children. They seemed to get on well domestically, but the truth was that they didn't really actually see a huge amount of each other. In the evenings, Ben was either out at a gig or a parents' evening, or else marking piles of exercise books and writing reports. Ben didn't have much time for his putative mother-in-law Diana either. With her dyed blonde hair, her expensive clothes and her gigantic 4x4, she was the archetypal lady who lunches.
She did part-time charity work for the Samaritans. Sometimes Ben would fear the scenario were he to need their help and unwittingly get Diana at the end of the line. And also dabbled in property, having bought a couple of flats in town and rented them out to students at the university. She seemed to live a life of carefree comfort and wished for the same for her daughter. The sooner Ben got promoted, married Rosie, and they settled down, the better. Diana had offered to give Ben and Rosie money to buy their flat, but Ben had refused, saying he wasn't prepared to accept charity. This caused considerable friction. It was hard to understand how Diana could live such a life as the wife of a primary head teacher, but Ben worked out that she must have inherited money from her wealthy parents. She exuded the calm, uncomprehending confidence of the well-off. All in all, it was pretty sporting of this conventional couple to agree to accommodate Corey Zander. Ben had, however, been slightly economical with the truth, going no further than describing him as a friend of a friend from America. If they'd had an inkling that he was smoking dope on their patio, they'd have had a nervous breakdown, probably even called the police. Remember, by the time Ben collected him from their house on Monday afternoon, they still hadn't actually clapped eyes on him. Nonetheless, Robert agreed to come along to the show and to help out if necessary. Diana had her bridge evening, so had to uh, reluctantly decline. Rosie pluckily said that she'd help Ben by selling and checking tickets at the door. They knew that the success of the evening meant a great deal to Ben. It was a trying day at school. Ben, on the day of his first attempt at concert promoting, was fretting and concentrating on anything other than the welfare of his little darlings. When tested to the limit by one girl who wouldn't stop asking his opinion of a Halloween picture she'd drawn, he shouted at her and made her cry. At 3.30, therefore, when he planned to rush off and attend to the welfare of Corey Zander, he had to deal with a wrathful mother at the school gates, whose daughter had told her that he'd been mean to her. It was nearly five by the time Ben got to Chilbelton Avenue. In the chilly autumn sunshine, Corey was sitting on the leaf-strewn patio, seemingly not having moved since the night before, although he assured Ben that he had been to bed. Have you seen Diana? Sure, she's real sweet. She made me bacon and eggs and gave me tea with honey. I played her a few songs, and then she went to lunch and she ain't back yet. It's a miracle, thought Ben. Somehow, Corey Zander had clearly worked his charms on Diana, at least to the extent that she hadn't run screaming to the neighbours. And there he sat acoustic guitar in hand, in the process of compiling a set list. "'Do you like Indian food?' asked Ben. His plan was to take Corey to the Light of Bengal, an Indian restaurant just down the road from the station. "'Can't say I've tried it, but why not?' "'Okay, shall we head to the venue now?' "'I'm as ready as I'll ever be.' Arriving at the station was a dispiriting experience. For a start, the place was locked, and it took fifteen minutes of knocking to elicit a response from landlord Andy, who had clearly been having a late afternoon nap. The place stank of stale beer, not unusual for a pub, but sick-making nonetheless. Corey immediately got told off for trying to light a cigarette indoors, and was banished to the scruffy beer garden, which was next to the car park, but fenced off from it. In the venue, torn posters hung off the black-painted walls, a couple of stray chairs and knocked-over beer glasses adorned the floor, and above all it was freezing cold. But at least Mike, the long-suffering sound engineer, was present and correct and ready to assist. 
Any idea how ticket sales are going? he inquired cheerfully. This was something that Ben had been trying to avoid thinking about. Having been so sadly let down by the local media, he felt pretty much that nobody even knew the show was happening. Online sales, he knew, were almost non-existent, but Sam had booked a local support act, and maybe some of their friends would come. A couple of Ben's colleagues had promised to attend. He didn't really believe them and thought they were trying to humour him. Rosie had tried and failed to interest some of her workmates. Had any been sold over the bar? Sam did a quick calculation and announced the grand total of advanced tickets sold. Thirteen. Ben hoped it wasn't an omen. Corey found himself an old bar stool and unpacked his rucksack, which contained an array of effects pedals. Within moments, Ben felt relief sweeping over him. Corey's voice was intact, deep, emotional and resonant. His acoustic guitar, with the help of the pedals, produced an amazing array of sounds, echoing spookily round the empty room as Mike set the levels on the sound desk. Yes, he was going to lose his shirt. Yes, the lack of a crowd might be going to verge on the embarrassing. But musically, it was going to be a hell of an evening. Declaring himself satisfied with the sound, Corey said he was ready for dinner. He was unfamiliar with anything on the menu at the Light of Bengal, so Ben recommended that reliable staple chicken tikka masala, which Corey consumed with relish. Then, to Ben's horror, he wandered out onto the pavement of Andover Road and casually lit up his little hash pipe. Surely this, combined with the rich, unfamiliar food, was bound to induce on-stage vomiting. Oh well, thought Ben, at least it'll be a talking point. Back at the station, the support band had arrived. This was a trio of local students called the Bookworms, with an acoustic act plainly modelled on Mumford & Sons. They may not have been particularly musically compatible with Corey, but they were competent and inoffensive. They also proudly announced that they had sold ten tickets to their friends. Things were looking up. Rosie arrived and she and Ben opened the doors punctually at eight o'clock. They hadn't spoken for more than twenty-four hours and she seemed tense and irritable. Among early arrivals was a white-haired man with a faded Grams t-shirt and a Grams vinyl album under his arm, plainly brought for Corey to sign. His wife had a broken leg and requested a chair, which she plonked in front of the stage, her plastered limb resting on a monitor. Friends of the support band filtered in and stood along the walls, chatting. A few random, unidentified, balding, middle-aged guys with beer bellies were there, too, and Ben recognised a couple of them from Americana shows in Basingstoke and Southsea. Robert arrived, incongruously still in his dark suit from work, and was talking to Rosie outside. Ben was grateful to Robert for agreeing to come and help out at an event he clearly had no interest in, merely out of a sense of loyalty. All in all, it was a bittersweet feeling. Musically, it was going to be good, Ben was sure, but there was something downbeat, odd and uncomfortable about the atmosphere. It was soon to become a whole lot worse. In the meantime, the support band had started playing their set to intermittent applause. A small clutch of their friends was gathered in front of the stage, watching them. To his amazement, Ben identified one of them as Carl, the pot dealer from Millbrook. Had he mentioned the gig to him? He was certain he hadn't, because all he'd wanted to do was to get away from that tower block as fast as possible. Surely he couldn't be making a delivery to Corey. 
Anyway, he was probably mistaken, as one dreadlock youth looked much the same as another. About two songs in, the door opened and a tall figure in a tracksuit and a baseball cap, together with two other men, tried to barge past Rosie. Ben put out a hand to stop him and explained that there was an admission fee of £15. The man reacted badly. Get your fucking hands off me! I'm sorry, mate, but you have to pay to get in. I'm on the guest list. We haven't got a guest list. My cousin's in the support band. He said we didn't have to pay. I'm sorry, but I'm afraid you do. A couple of people in the audience had already turned round and were making shushing noises. Ben was unsure what to do. This guy and his mates were aggressive and drunk, and he didn't want a row that could potentially develop into a fight. He couldn't expect Rosie to help out. Robert had disappeared into the other bar, and Corey, who probably could have acted as a deterrent on account of his size, was lying low, and probably skinning up, in the upstairs broom cupboard which served as a dressing room. In the end, Ben made a decision. Well, you can come in now, and we'll sort it out in the interval. The guys lumbered in and went straight to the bar, where they chatted loudly. Ben wondered what the onstage cousin would be thinking of all this. Rosie had some advice. Don't you know who that is? she whispered. No, should I? That's Barry Mort. Who's Barry Mort? I went to school with him. He's a bloody psychopath. He's done time for drug dealing, GBH, attempted murder, the lot. Ben was vaguely aware of the extended Mort family, always in the weekly news for some crime or other, usually violent. Mort, with its appropriately deadly connotations, was a local Hampshire name. This branch of the Morts was the nearest the country town had to a gang culture, with family members looking out for each other and intimidating potential witnesses to their various activities. Maybe he can get hold of some dope for Corey, thought Ben glumly. But he was also genuinely scared because it was obvious that the Mort gang was already annoying others in the audience with their chatter. It would only take someone to say the wrong thing and it could kick off, ruining the evening. Not for the first time, Ben sincerely wished he'd never heard of Corey Zander, and had never met that damn booking agent, and had never got himself into this scrape. He might come out of it with damage to more than just his pocket. The bookworm's set reached what they thought was a rousing climax, and they left the stage to a smattering of applause. Sure enough, Barry Mort and his mates marched straight to the stage and started slapping the harmonica player on the back. Nice one, Shane. Cheers. Yeah, cheers, Baz. Ben was now in a quandary. He could approach Barry and make an issue out of the payment, or he could hope that he'd go away when the bookworms had packed up their gear. In view of what Rosie had told him, confrontation would be foolish, so Ben decided on caution. He could certainly have done with the admission fees, because the income so far had fallen woefully short of covering Corey's fee, but he could see no way that he could, he could intimidate Barry into paying, nor indeed appeal to his better nature, as he didn't appear to have one. Staggering slightly, Mort and Powell's were helping the bookworms to carry their gear out of the stage door, through which they eventually exited, doubtless to hang about smoking in the beer garden. Robert, who had been working on his laptop in a corner table in the front bar, now entered the venue, looking thunderous and wildly out of place in his suit. He sat down behind the merchandise table. Ben had asked him to guard it while Corey was performing, and while he looked after the door. Rosie, pleading a headache, had gone home in the interval, assuming that the morts had gone, and that it was unlikely that there would be a sudden rush of customers that Ben wouldn't be able to cope with. 
At 9.10, Corey Zander shuffled into the room. Not even the guy in the Grams t-shirt recognised him. As he tuned up his guitar and fiddled with his effects pedals, most of the assembled gaggle assumed he was a scruffy roadie, preparing the stage for the star. Ben was relieved to see that all the bookworm's followers had disappeared into the beer garden too. He had too often experienced the scenario whereby the support band's fans ignore the headliner, talking all the way through his set. Thank God for the indoor smoking ban, thought Ben. That ought to keep them away. This was where the evening looked up. There were about twenty people in the room, and Ben guessed most of them were familiar with Corey's back catalogue. It took a moment for them to realise that the show had started, because the random tuning up gradually metamorphosed into an echo maelstrom that abruptly became a song. As it settled into a groove, people gradually became aware that it was a radically rearranged version of The Mountain from the Desert Grave album. Utilising a range of looping devices, Corey had found a way to make himself sound like a full band. It was fantastic. As applause, whoops and whistles greeted each song, most of them entirely unfamiliar, Corey visibly relaxed. Towards the end of his 90-minute set, he started making the odd joke and telling a couple of anecdotes about the good old days, even asking if there were any requests. With the candles on the tables flickering away and the heating finally functioning, the atmosphere in the room was almost convivial. Sod the money, thought Ben. At least the evening has been a success. This'll be my last song, said the gruff voice of Corey Zander. Some of you may recognise it. Then, albeit at half the original speed and without the thunderous drums, the unmistakable riff of Mad and Bad rang out. People even started clapping along. And then it all went wrong. Into the room crashed Barry Mort. He was on his own and he was very drunk. He was looking for something he'd left behind, but even he recognised the song. Yeah, you're fucking mad, all right, he shouted. You're fucking bad as well. You're shit. People shifted uncomfortably. For a moment, Corey seemed to be going to try and ride it out, but Barry was unstoppable. Fuck you, you smelly old yank. You're crap, and you know you are, he sang, pointing at the stage and trying to conduct the audience and the abusive football chants to the tune of the village people. That was enough for Corey. Stopping abruptly in mid-song, he stood up, carefully placed his guitar in its stand, and advanced towards Barry Mort. Within seconds, Mort was up against the sticky wall, with Corey's enormous hands round his throat. Mort may have been big, but Corey was bigger. Motherfucker, was the only word Corey used. Fucking motherfucker, as he maintained the pressure. Get off, let me go, I can't breathe, gasped Mort, as audience members, initially stunned, gathered round and tried to pull Corey off. As for Ben, he had indeed feared that there might be trouble, but he hadn't bargained for a full-on murder. Only ten minutes before, Corey had been singing a couple of murder ballads. Now it seemed to be happening for real. As Barry Mort slumped to the floor, Corey gradually released his grip, took a step back, landed a well-aimed kick in Mort's testicles, pronounced, You got what you deserve, motherfucker, and marched purposely out of the door. Ben didn't know whether to follow him or attend to the wounded. In the end, he ran over to the completely stunned Robert, to whom such a situation was completely unprecedented in his entire life, and asked him to see what had happened to Corey while he kept an eye on Barry Mort. Mort seemed okay. He recovered within a couple of minutes, pronounced, 
That fucker ain't gonna know what's fucking hit him, and headed for the beer garden in search of his gang. Please don't cause any more trouble, pleaded Ben. Fuck off, you cunt. I'm gonna fucking kill him. It could safely be said that the evening hadn't ended well. Wide-eyed audience members slunk for the exit, not even stopping off at the unmanned merchandise table. Of Corey there was no sign. Ben was in fear of his life, thinking he'd be in the Mort gang's firing line by association. Robert was nowhere to be seen either, so Ben helped Mike the sound engineer to clear up the stage. Corey's rucksack was still there, so they put the effects pedals in it. The guitar went back in its case, and the Fender twin amp Ben had hired from the local guitar shop was placed in a corner to be retrieved in the morning. Daring to look out onto the beer garden next to the dark car park, Ben couldn't see anyone about. He hoped that Mort and his mates hadn't gone after Corey, because those guys would probably be dap hands with baseball bats. Unsure what to do, he then talked to Andy, the landlord. First, he collected the small amount of money that had accumulated, at the same time apologising that things had gone so wrong. We should have had security on the door, admitted Andy, who, having pretty much seen everything over his years in the pub trade, didn't seem particularly bothered. That Barry Mort has been banned from all Winchester pubs for years. I just didn't expect anything like that at all, said Ben. Really, Sam shouldn't have booked that support band, then Mort wouldn't have been here in the first place. Oh, well, no harm done, really. Just put it down to experience, was Andy's philosophical conclusion. Ben wasn't too impressed that Robert had obviously gone home, but he did understand how upsetting the incident must have been. There was nothing for it but to set out in search of Corey on his own. Given his reputation of simply doing a runner, he could be anywhere. First, Ben walked to Orham's Arbour, a nearby park which was scattered with benches. Maybe Corey had hunkered down there. Then, just to check, he called Chilbolton Avenue, in case Corey had simply walked back there, but there was no answer. Diana took heavy-duty sleeping tablets, but Ben would have expected Robert to reply. Winchester, late on Monday night, was dead. Ben walked along Jewry Street, past the Theatre Royal and the Library, having a quick look in St Peter's Church graveyard. The high street was deserted, apart from a few stray students on their way back to their residences. The cathedral grounds would have been a likely spot for Corey to crash out, but a passing security guard said he'd seen nothing unusual. Ben progressed past the fast-flowing river Itchen, momentarily wondering whether Corey might have stumbled into it. But he hadn't really been drunk, and surely the incident, annoying as it was, hadn't been enough to induce thoughts of suicide. For a moment, Ben hesitated outside North Wales Police Station. Should he report Corey missing? That would presumably trigger a search operation, and Corey had previous in doing disappearing acts. Tired, fed up, and pretty angry about how things had turned out, Ben set out to walk home to Week. On the way, he did a detour to the hospital, but there was no sign of Corey in casualty. That was a relief. Now, as far as Ben was concerned, Corey could sleep outside in the cold and sod him. He felt crap in the morning. How did it go? asked Rosie. I'll tell you later, replied Ben, grabbing a cereal bar and his work rucksack as he headed off on his usual walk to school, feeling that things weren't usual at all. He arrived just in time for registration and assembly, which was being grimly conducted by Robert, who had at least changed into another suit. The theme was Love Thy Neighbour as Thyself, and Ben felt Robert's eyes on him as he emphasised the importance of being kind to one's fellow humans.
This was unfair, felt Ben. It wasn't as if he planned any of this. At break time, Ben knocked on Robert's door. I appreciate it was an unpleasant incident, Robert, but it was a bit unfair of you just to abandon me to sort it all out. You make your bed, Ben, and you lie on it. Anyway, I was scared. Can't you see that in my position, I can't get involved in any situation that could bring bad publicity on the school? Ben sighed. Robert was right, of course. He'd been an idiot to invite him in the first place. The music, the environment, the culture, everything about it had been alien to Robert. So how could he have expected support? Somehow, Ben got through the rest of the day, mainly by instructing the children to sit in silence and do written work, an approach which the children hated, and which certainly would have earned him a reprimand from Ofsted. Ben was sure that Corey would turn up. Apart from anything else, he needed to collect £500 from Ben, and then somehow get to Basingstoke for the next show. The plan had been for Ben to drive him there, but in view of what had happened, he now felt inclined simply to put him on a train. The biggest worry was this. What if the Mort gang had actually found him? In that case, there was a good chance that Corey was lying beaten up in some ditch, and that his tour wasn't going anywhere. But on balance, Ben was confident that he would either be at the venue, in a coffee shop somewhere, or most likely sleeping back at Shawbolton Avenue. A phone call to Diana was disappointing. Corey hadn't returned. She'd been in all day, but there'd been no sign of him. Ben's next stop would have to be the station. The gear would have had to be retrieved anyway, and Corey would probably have headed there to collect it. Why didn't the idiot have a mobile phone? For the rest of the tour, Ben would recommend him to buy a pay-as-you-go phone to avoid losing touch with the other hapless promoters. As he expected, the station was deserted. There were just a couple of cars in the large car park. On the ground, Ben spotted an empty Coke bottle and a couple of discarded kebab containers. A good upbringing and years of telling children never to leave litter meant Ben was one of those people who always pick up rubbish. In the far corner of the car park was the large refuse container which was used by the venue to dispose of its garbage. As he opened the lid, Ben noted a trail of ketchup leaking out from behind it. Disgusting! Bending down to see if he could do anything about clearing it up, Ben suddenly choked, and with a shiver of shock, realised that he was living a cliché. Yes, it wasn't ketchup. It was blood. Wedged behind the bin, invisible to anyone not walking up and examining it, was a large bundle of grey clothes. As Ben moved the wheeled container forward, he saw the truth. It wasn't a bundle of old clothes. It was Corey Zander. Breathless, Ben didn't for a moment panic. He assumed Corey must have crawled behind there to sleep, having returned late at night to find the station locked. He'd taken the bourbon with him, so had most likely been on a bender. Released from where the bin had held him against the wall, Corey was now lying on his back. Copying what he'd seen in a thousand TV crime shows, Ben, when there was no reply to his request to wake up, slapped the bewhiskered face a couple of times. Nothing. Christ, surely he wasn't dead. Ben listened for a breath. Nothing. It was just weeks since Ben had attended a first aid course at the River Park Leisure Centre, so his instinct kicked in. He started pumping Corey's chest. Sing staying alive as you do it to get the correct rhythm he had been taught. So there he was, a surreal picture in a sordid, litter-strewn car park, fruitlessly pressing up and down on a strange American's chest while singing aloud a Bee Gees song.
but once again, nothing. Ben stood up and looked at his hands. From where he had been trying to cradle Corey's head, they were covered with blood. There was no way round it. Corey was dead. Xander and Oliver's other books are also available in print and Kindle editions. For more information, head to olivergray.com. This audiobook was a DC 10 Tonight production. <laughs>